Exile on that street. I'm your host, Chris Zellner, and it's time for another installment of our Wrestling from the 80s series that we've been doing, chronicling the Wrestling from the 80s video collection of one John McAdam, and of course, who else am I going to have on the show to talk about it with me than the man, John McAdam. And John, welcome back. It's been way too long. It has been way too long. I always enjoy doing this. Thank for thank you for having me on. Uh, just in case I sound like I'm being strangled, don't call the authorities. It's just that time of year where my voice gets all messed up because of all the pollen. But no, thank you for having me on. Yeah, that's weird that that it's now this time of year that that gets you because normally most people have their problems in like March, Aprilish. So you're a late one on on that. <laughs> On the pollen stuff. Especially this year. I mean, I, I complained about it on the Stick to Wrestling podcast a couple of days ago. I mean, it has been an absolutely miserable spring out here. I mean, it's a nice day today, but we've had nothing but, like, rain and clouds. And I think that's why everything's late and everything, you know, I go out to my car and there's just, like, yellow dust all over it. Oh, so. yeah. We, we went through, yeah, we went through that last month, so. All right. Exactly how it is. Exactly. Right now, down here in lovely Georgia, uh, we're pushing 90. <laughs> so, and it'll be 97 this week. This gonna, this oh, my. Comes. Yeah, here it comes. But yeah. enough, of, enough of that foolishness. All right, let's get started here. Where we left off, uh, we ended with Volume 7 on the last show. Now we go to Volume 8, and this is uh, a tape that I bought from Mr. John McAdam, and I love this tape because it has a lot of Really cool stuff on there, and it's a lot of mixed uh, type stuff. Quite the potpourri on this tape. I why it mate begins with some stuff from George Championship Wrestling, of course, my favorite promotion. And we have a Tommy Rich Kevin Sullivan match that leads off. Tommy Rich has just come back into the territory from Memphis, and this is one of the very first matches he had on television. And so it's against Kevin Sullivan, who has. You know, been the TV champion, has got to push the heel. He's kind of on his way out. So this is a way to, you know, give Tom Rich a big win on television against a guy who has been around and you know, has credibility and, and get Tommy back in that spotlight. And, and and if he's never seen Kevin Sullivan in this era, this is Kevin Sullivan at his most jacked, I would say. Would you agree with that, John? Uh, was this 1981? Yeah, March. Okay, you could, right, because you said Tommy Rich comes back to Georgia. Yeah, Kevin was definitely shredded. Uh, he was no longer the you know chubby Irish-looking guy who has a bench press in, in Natick or wherever. He was he was cut up. Yeah, and he was doing uh, bodybuilding contests in this time period. He was Mr. Tennessee at this point. Oh, that's time. right. And they showed the video on television of uh, his contest, and uh, yeah, he was just so ripped and. Um, <laughs> Nothing like a guy from Lexington, Mass, winning Mr. Tennessee. <laughs> but Tommy, I mean, he had been gone since August of 1980 when he left and went back to Memphis. And he comes back to Georgia. And Georgia's a totally different promotion from when he left it. And he just brought this energy back with him that Georgia was missing for the whole time he was gone. Wouldn't you say that? Um, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, Tommy Rich established himself really as the number one babyface in Georgia when he left. I would say he was number one by 1979. Yeah. And when he left, it kind of went back to Mr. Wrestling 2. And I, I liked 2 a lot. Um, I think he was good at, as his 
in his role as like the veteran guy, but Tommy was like the young, energetic guy that they never really replaced. Yeah, because you had like wrestling too, then you had uh, Ted DiBiase and Robert Fuller came in, which are totally different style of baby faces than Tommy at this time. Uh, Tony Atlas was there, and Tony, of course, you know, was was over. Steve O, who was definitely not like Tommy Rich, so you needed to get that spark back, and Tommy brought that spark. No, I totally agree, and it was a very successful run. I mean, you know, whether or not we like quickies with the NWA title, he won the NWA title. He was the national heavyweight champion. So, yeah, it was definitely a spark that, that lit up Georgia. Absolutely. All right, also, we had the Freebirds against Steve Kern, another one of those baby faces that replaced Tommy Rich, and Charlie Cook, where Michael Hayes tried to blind Steve Kern with the Freebird hair cream. Until Tony Atlas, Junkyard Dog, and others made the save. Ah, the dreaded Freebird hair cream, John. What were your thoughts on on that uh, when they would do that type of stuff? I mean, I I loved it. It was unique. Um, I think I talked about it the last time I was on, but you know, Michael Hayes borrowing the hair cream from Paul Orndorff's uh, gym bag in the locker room yes. in Louisiana. Um, yeah, it was good stuff. You know, talk about re-energizing Georgia. The Freebirds had a lot to do with that. Oh, absolutely. They had a heel energy that uh, Georgia hadn't had in a while. Georgia had always had heels, but not like the Freebirds. The Freebirds were young. They uh, had a great look. They had the music. I mean, they were something that's totally different in wrestling. They were so unique. I mean, I had never heard anyone come to the ring with music until I saw the Freebirds in Mid-South. Now, people will be like, well, Gorgeous George or whoever, but like that was long forgotten by the time the Freebirds came around. And then if you watch TBS, every time they come out, Freebird starts up. So you would hear yes, the opening even chords, for an interview. You would hear the opening chords of Freebird sometimes four or five times a show. <laughs> yes. So it just bashed you over the head with it. <laughs> I mean, I remember we we started getting WTBS in uh, October 1981, and it was just so completely different than what the WWF was doing. By this point, Michael Hayes was a babyface, and he would come out to Freebird every time. And it was just you know a totally different vibe with the music. Absolutely. All right, we fast forward uh, to 82 in George. We have Tom Rich and Buzz Sawyer have an unscheduled brawl. Shocking. When Roddy Piper mm -hmm. ran out and uh, used a ring post to injure Tommy Rich's arm. And this was a big deal. Um, it got Tommy out of action. And I've recently been watching uh, Mid-Atlantic 82 on the network. And they were really playing it up on there, too, as a, as, a, as a big angle. And they actually showed clips, although we don't have that week of television. They showed clips of, uh, of the TBS stuff to really get that over. Since Roddy was such a big heel in both, both promotions. but. Uh, yeah, the Roddy Piper, we talk about him a lot, you know, in these shows, but man, he was just uh <laughs> he was just a phenomenon right here. And then you got Richard Sawyer, you know, they were a match made in heaven. So this is a great era in Georgia wrestling, no doubt. Uh, it, it definitely was. I mean, we, we just talked about how the Freebirds kind of revolutionized the wrestling business by coming out to music. I know like Mid South had dabbled in having heel commentators but not full-time heel commentators i mean roddy piper as a full-time heel commentator on georgia championship wrestling i mean what a trailblazer yeah definitely considering how it, 
you know, wrestling would evolve as time went on where they were heel commentators. The WF would use them, you know, in the 80s with Jesse and Bobby and just other promotions would, would, would use that trope as well. I mean, Piper was the guy that was the, the trendsetter. Yeah, he he was the originator, and now you you know you look back. I remember seeing like independent promotions in the late '80s and early '90s, and it was almost. It, I, I think the word standard would be appropriate. It was standard that you had a babyface co- commentator and a heel commentator trying to insert comedy into the television to the point where sometimes it worked and a lot of the times it didn't. It was just you had a match going on in the ring and these two people bickering in the background. But, I mean, Roddy's not responsible for that. I love the way they did it with Roddy Piper where he was subtle about it. He wasn't he wasn't out there, quote-unquote, trying to be a heel he was out there being roddy piper and trying to behave and not always being able to because he's roddy piper and by this point in time when this is going on he's he's full force like i mean he's rarely even doing announcing on george tv at this time he's just you know straight up you know he's lead basically the lead heel in the promotion when when this angle is i think it's fair to say he was the lead heel in the promotion by this point yeah and then it's like it's, this is, you know, I say around June-ish. So then you got, you know, two more months before the babyface turn. So, uh, yeah, this he's really rolling at this point in time, no doubt. It, yeah, he was on the cover of magazines. He was, I, I mean, it might be fair to say he was the number one bad guy in the sport. Oh, absolutely. All right, and, and the uh, last of the George Championship Wrestling stuff, it was a match from Japan Television. Rick Flair versus Harley Race from the Omni from February 20th, 1982. Uh, Dave gave it four and a quarter stars. Dave Meltzer, and this was a deal where you never saw full Omni matches, and this is—I mean, especially ones that were professionally shot. So the mm-hmm. fact that you you had this from Japanese television, and they aired other ones too, uh, from the Omni from that show because uh, Giant Baba and Jumbo Sharuto came in to work the uh, NWA World Tag Title Tournament uh, thing they did in Atlanta. Um, and they did a U.S. tour. But you very rarely ever saw matches from the Omni like this. So this had to be, especially like the time you got it, this had to be like a real rare treat to see. It was. I remember I got it like summer or fall of 1987, and just being able to see you know, two all-time greats like Flair and Race in a full match from the United States doing their thing. I mean, it, it, you know, it's one of those things that, that just five years ago I thought I would never see. I didn't know what a VCR was. I didn't know that people were recording this stuff. And it was like, you know, boom, it exists, and here it is, and I get to see it. I mean, you know, <laughs> dream come true. What can I say? <clears throat> I mean, we're spoiled now. I mean, considering what, oh, yeah. what, we, what we have access to, what we can get. And, you know, the fact Japan television was showing stuff, you know, that was in America, but not a lot of people were getting Japan TV at that point in time. It wasn't until the, you know, really the 90s is when people started getting their contacts from Japan. And then you started seeing more and more Japanese TV come out, whether it be from the 70s, 80s and 90s. And then all this stuff starting to hit the market. And it's like, wow, you know, it's just, just great to have these these hidden gems so to say like WWE does uh just show up out of nowhere you know 
Oh, yeah. I, I started getting Japan regularly right around the end of 1987, and it was it was the kind of thing – I mean, I already had a ton of tapes by the end of 87, and I had someone you know who was regularly getting Japanese wrestling. I'm like, hey, you know, I've got all this stuff for trade, and he's like, no, I don't need anything, just cash. You know? So I'd be sending this guy uh, $100 for like, you know, the, the latest – uh, a month or two of Japan, but it, it turned out to be worth it, obviously. Oh, absolutely. In that time, for sure. All right, now we advance to Mid-South Wrestling, and this would take place um, in early 83, going to mid-83, as we have uh, Dick Murdoch versus Marty Lundy, who, of course, would become Arn Anderson. You go back and watch this match, and you see Arn, and, and this is the early stages of his career, and then you watch a match from Arn from like, you know, later in the decade, even in the 90s. It's amazing how Arn looks almost exactly the same, other than maybe oh, a yes. tan and less hair. <laughs> a little less hair. He didn't start out with much. Yeah, Arn looked like Arn forever. <laughs> You know, speaking of Arn Anderson, I mean, one of my favorite wrestling memories was when, let me start by saying this, when I first saw Arn Anderson in like 83, 84 on Georgia, I thought he was boring. I am sorry. I The, the tag team of Arn Anderson and Matt Bourne managed by, I don't think they were managed by anybody, I take that back. Um, or were they managed by Ellering? I, yes, they were. Yep. And it sounds good on paper, but I thought it was just leadenly dull when I was watching it. Now, I've gone back and watched it, and I don't think it's a very good team. And when, we, we, when Jim Crockett took over the WTBS spot in 85, it was really cool, like week to week, watching Arn Anderson grow and be and evolve and become what he eventually became um just it seemed like every week he got better he got better in the ring his interviews got better he was a great bad guy and you know starting off in 83 where i thought the guy was boring he became one of my all-time favorite wrestlers well you know going to work for the fullers was the the, the best thing that ever happened for him because they were the ones that gave him the push and then mm-hmm. they let him cut for, cut loose and and you know and let him grow as a as a performer in, in every way and being with Jerry Stubbs also helped because Jerry Stubbs was such a a great wrestler and great you know he he could do a lot of stuff too on promos so I mean he was with the right people at the right time to help season him for when he needed to go to bigger bigger, bigger places and uh, yeah that's, that's something that's missing in wrestling you know it's, I agree it's missing in wrestling today. I, I totally agree. I mean, the WWF, uh, WWE, develop, you know, they have their developmental plan, which is fine. But what they're doing is they're they're kind of making everyone a clone of the guy next to them. I know that's a common complaint, but it, it's really true. Just you know, no one really in the WWF. WWE really gets over anymore organically. I mean, Kofi Kingston, that just happened, and that was great. But, you know, it's like everyone – it's a common complaint, but it's true. Everyone's the same, and that's why I miss, like, wrestling from the 70s and 80s where where guys just went out on their own and did their thing, and everyone was different. Well, it's because, you know, you're bouncing around from territory to territory, and, and territories are different. So you had to learn. Yes. You had to learn how to work to different crowds and how to do different things. So you had to become a well-rounded performer if 
you know, if you if you were willing to travel and do and do these things. So that's again, it, it's just a lost art for sure in uh, wrestling today. It is. You know, you mentioned going to uh, the Southeast Territory was the best thing that happened to Arn. Another element of that was they sent Arn to pick Ric Flair up at the airport one day, <laughs> and those two just, you know, totally got along. Rick fell in love with the guy, recommended him to Dusty, and that's one reason Arn got the push he got in the Carolinas. Exactly. Now, you mentioned Matt Bourne. Matt Bourne is here as a member of the Rat Pack, and he's teaming with Ted DiBiase. And we have a match here between him and Bruno San Martino Jr. Yes, Davis San Martino worked for Bill Watts a, a little bit, a little cup of coffee. And babyface Buddy Landau with black hair. <laughs> Boy, and you and, and you note here, funny to see Bud Rowe with black hair. Man, you talk about a guy who changed his image and look. In a, and this was early 83. He went to Puerto Rico a couple months later at this, and that's when he went blonde and the rest is history. So when, when you see the two buddy Landells, uh, I mean, it's crazy to look at that, right? To see how, how different he would become as he grew as a wrestler. Yeah, they tried to push Buddy Landell as a single in uh, San Antonio, like at the end of 82, I want to say, and just kind of, you know, the good-looking jock guy, and he just didn't have that charisma, in my opinion, Um, but he was... Buddy, you know, Buddy, it's kind of the whole thing is kind of a sad story. I mean, Buddy showed so much potential a year later in Mid-South. He looked like he was going to be a superstar, and we all know what happened. He just flaked out on Dusty, got fired, and just never got back in the groove again. And again, it's like Arn. You I mean you send somebody to you know sent to, to the right place? And Buddy, it was going to Puerto Rico, and then when he leaves Puerto Rico, he goes he goes and works for Memphis, and uh, he enhances his heel persona in those territories. So by the time he goes back to Bed South, he's just a totally different guy, and he's just yes. amazing. And what he was doing, but and, and if you watch, he was. If, if if you watched him in '82 and early '83, like this match, you're like, is this the same guy? <laughs> you know, he he totally reinvented himself, and I just love the 1984 edition of Buddy Landell, oh, where awesome. he is an absolute dime store Ric Flair wannabe. Amazing. You know, under a. Butchery trying to you know run with the big dogs and he just can't and I I love that persona. Yes. All right. Also uh, hanging around Mid South and at the beginning of '83 is Gino Hernandez and we have two matches here. Gino against Mister Wrestling Two and then Gino against Chavo Guerrero who's kind of feuding with at the time in a match that uh, Dave gave three and a half stars. Um, I'm so I'm so glad that Gino. In the recent weeks, since the Viceland documentary came out on Dark Side of the Ring, has been getting reborn by the wrestling fans. Able to find, you know, watch Gino stuff. It's given them the the opportunity to go out there and try to seek out Gino stuff because Gino dying so young, we were robbed of what really could have been with him because he had a great career for what he had. But he was still so young and had so much left to give to the business that you watch this stuff 
you know, here, whether it was Southwest or whether it was working for Watts or whether it was working for World Class. And you just see this guy, and it's just like amazing to watch. And he was, he was one of my favorites as a, as a small child. I love Gina. And, uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm so glad to see him get back in the spotlight again. I mean, consider this. Gino died when he was either, I think he was 28. If not, he was 29. He had already been in the business for over 10 years. He'd started, I want to say, in 76 or 77. And he, so he was already a veteran uh, when he, when he was 20, you know, when he was getting pushed in world class as a 26, 27 year old. So, you know, yeah, he probably had a very bright, Gina's one of the, one of the most, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Fascinating. What ifs in the wrestling game? Like what if he had never died? What if he didn't have the problems that he had? Um, what would have happened with his career? I maybe he I think he would have definitely moved to mid south after the '86 Texas Stadium show. What happens after that is the big question mark. Does he get treated like a stepchild by Dusty and winds up back in the minor league Dallas by then 1988? Does he get pushed by the NWA? Does the WWF pick him up? I mean, it could have gone in a million different directions. Well, you know, though there was the story goes that you know. He was being talked about maybe being a future horseman if he wanted to do that, you know. Uh, I know Tully wanted to bring him in. Yes. So who knows? I mean, it's possible. It's definitely possible. You know what? If 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 Tully, if Gino had come in with Tully, think about it. The horseman might have never happened, or he might have been part of it. Yeah. When I say when I say they might have never happened. You might have had a Gino and Tully faction, and then uh, Ric Flair and the Andersons faction, and no Horseman. Who knows? But one thing, one quick thing about that match, Hernandez against Wrestling Two. Bill Watts did commentary, and the whole time he's doing commentary, he's not talking about the match. He is fuming about Oklahoma <laughs> losing to Arizona State. Oh my Fiesta God! Bowl. Yes, yes. Frank and Bush, without mentioning yeah. without mentioning Marcus Dupree's name, he's like, yeah, Oklahoma has turned into a country club under Barry Switzer. The whole match, he did, he didn't even address the match. He just pissed off. He was pissed off about the Sooners. Oh yes, I'm I'm so glad you brought that up because I forgot about that. Yes, uh, <laughs> they play at Arizona State, basically Arizona State's home stadium, and if he has the ball. Marcus Dupree had this tremendous game, although he was in and out with injuries. And, of course, Dr. Death, you know, was a starting offensive lineman for Oklahoma. Bill Watts, you know, huge Oklahoma fan. Yes. When Bill Watts would go off on his tirades on commentary about something completely that has nothing to do with the match, I always thought it was hilarious. <laughs> I always thought it was hilarious. Yes. I mean, he would go on tirades about anything, but this one was special. Yes. He was legitimately upset. <laughs> All right. Um, then we have two Road Warriors matches. Yes, the Road Warriors. We have Road Warriors versus Hacksaw Jim Duggan and Magnum TA in a battle of the national tag team champions against the Mid-South tag team champions. And the Road Warriors versus Rick Rude and Art Cruz. Of course, Rick Rude, young babyface Rick Rude here. Um, this is during that time period where – and it happened a lot, but this time period definitely – Georgia and Mid-South were really working together a lot. Um, Georgia would send guys to work uh, the Superdome and work other shows from Mid-South. 
uh, Mid-South, basically squash matches would air on the Sunday television show. Um, what was your thoughts on how they, they had that relationship and seeing as many Mid-South matches as we saw on that Sunday show? Yeah, it was definitely a strange time and a strange relationship because think about it, the Georgia Championship Wrestling is part of the NWA in 1983. However, when Harley Race won the NWA title from Ric Flair, I believe it was June 11th, 1983, they on their biggest the NWA's biggest show, they do not acknowledge that Harley Race has won the belt, allegedly because Ole Anderson didn't want Harley Race as champion. So he just ignored the title switch until October. Um, so now Ole is – not only did he have wrestlers from Mid-South on his show – Mid-South was not part of the NWA, but he was having wrestlers from Southwest on the show. Southwest was not part of the NWA. So, I mean, something was going on there. I think, you know, he has uh, Blanchard's guys on TV, and they're talking about a merger, and wherever you're watching this, we're going to be there soon kind of thing. I mean – I can't say exactly what happened, but, I mean, it looked like Ole was kind of looking to make a break from the NWA. There was a lot going on with Ann Gunkel in that, too. Ann Gunkel was working with Southwest, and she was yes. doing her deal, her global wrestling deal, and there was a lot going on there. A lot behind the scenes. Uh-huh. So, but the Road Warriors Zach- admit well, – go ahead. No, I was going to say Road Warriors against Rick Rude and our crews. I mean, Rick Rude turned down the opportunity to be one of the Road Warriors. Yes. There's a little worked, bit of irony I there. I it worked out for him, though, in the end. I think it worked out for him in the end as well. Uh, but, man, I've seen, this is, Road Warriors worked this one taping. That's the only taping they ever worked for Watts that I know of. And uh, they were in a different place when they were for Watts. You watch these matches, especially the Doug and Magnum match. This wasn't your TBS mm-hmm. match. <laughs> no. <laughs> they weren't steamrolling these guys, that's for sure. And, you know, I remember that match. I remember thinking it really highlighted the uh, one of the strengths of Mid-South Wrestling was that they kept their TV matches relatively short, which hid the deficiencies of some of the wrestlers. Like, the Road Warriors were very green still in 1983, but you wouldn't know it watching that match because – it, it was fast paced. It was short. It didn't give you. You didn't have a time to pick these guys apart. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Ne- next, we have Ted DiBiase versus Hacksaw Jim Duggan in a loser leave town match on television. Insane well brawl. Uh, wrestlers all over. Were all over the ring. Um, four and a quarter stars. Hell of a match. And this is a uh, DiBiase swan song. From Mid-South, as he would lose this match, uh, Duggan used a 2 by 4 on him. He lost his match and eventually went to Atlanta as part of, you know. Went to Atlanta as a heel. And I'll tell you what, I I really think Atlanta was struggling in 1983. Um, I'm almost known for picking this apart in some quarters. Booker's (laughs) name There you go. 
Um, I mean, and here's the thing, and I, I apologize if, I, if I've said this on the show before. Like, it's 1983. I am 17, 18 years old. I, I don't get the Observer. I just read the magazines, go along with whatever I saw on TV. And even then, I knew something was wrong with Georgia. Like, the, the quality control was just non-existent. Um, they were cu- booking all kinds of goofy stuff. They were using guys I considered to be just not major league stars as their stars. And when Ted DiBiase came back and it was almost like, you know, oh, wow, you know, he comes on TV and it's like Ted DiBiase's not a good guy anymore. Wow. And I think he by himself did a lot to get that promotion back on track, at least artistically, because now you have a guy, okay, we know this guy's major league. I could see him winning the NWA title. He'd been North American champion. You know, he was a legit star and he kind of brought everyone up with him. Oh, absolutely. He, he, he was a, a, like Tommy Rich was, he was kind of a spark needed, you know, him and Jake, yes. him and Jake been around the same time period. And, yes, they did. And they needed that type of heel, heel presence. The Road Warriors are growing, and Ted and Jake coming in, and you know they turn bust all your face, and the promotion gets kind of a little makeover a little bit in the end of '83. No, I, I agree. <laughs> and Ric Flair won the NWA title back, yep. and you know all of a sudden the Saturday after Starcade, wow, the NWA <laughs> champion is back on WTBS. And I thought, you know, just a lot, a lot of what went on before that looked kind of bush league. You know, we've got Larry Zabisco and Killer Brooks as the lead heels, uh, and then the NWA champion is nowhere to be found. And yeah, right around fall of '83, things started to come back together for that group. Bundy had come in, yeah. I mean, guys, yes, yeah, guys were, you know, they were getting better talent. That's for sure. Yeah, they borrowed Valentine. P- uh, Piper came back briefly. Slater worked so, a little bit. Dusty showed back yeah. up for some in a while. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was getting back to normal again. It felt like it, yeah. I mean, it felt like, you know, from early 83 until, like, fall of 83, there was just this, I don't know, black hole that was Georgia Championship <laughs> Wrestling. It was almost like they woke up and they said, look, you know, we can't just put anyone out there and say they're a main eventer. and That makes them a main eventer. Exactly. And our last mid-sub match on this is from two years after, 1985, uh, where Gino Hernandez is here uh, on the part of the Mid-South World Class relationship against a young babyface, Tom Pritchard, who uh, wouldn't turn would turn heel not too long after this match. <clears throat> that Mid-South World Class relationship, that was more of a deeper relationship than the one with Georgia. I mean, they were really working close together in 85. Yeah, you, you know what? I mean, I I noticed that world class didn't didn't seem to use the mid south guys well, as much as they they used them on Fort Worth more than they used them in the Sportatorium. Which, okay, which is interesting. I mean, I know you know the Rock and Roll Express showed up once the. Um, uh, Steve Williams showed up once. Reed showed up once. But you know, when if you could just bring the Von Erichs into Louisiana, I mean, that's a draw. And if you bring him in against Adams and Hernandez, that's even a bigger draw. So yeah, I remember the Hernandez uh, Tom Pritchard match from it was one of the, on one of the shows that aired on WTBS. Okay, interesting. I think so. Yeah, I'm that would have been, sure. that would have been that would have been the timeline. The Mid-South '85 stuff on TBS, yeah. And of course, Mid-South and World Class had they shared Oklahoma City and Tulsa in this time period as well. I mean, so 
there was a deep, deep relationship there that would go away <laughs> very soon. Thanks to Kid, very soon. Thanks to Kid Mantel. So <laughs> that's a whole nother show. All right, next we have uh, Florida. Ginger Rust from Florida here. From uh, quite the year in, in Florida, 1982. We have the Funk Brothers, Dory and Terry, against uh, two Bayfaces at the time that were kind of uh, getting these little pushes. Don Diamond and Eric Embry. Now, of course, Eric Embry, who at this time was Nitro Eric Embry, uh, we all know what he would become. But Don Diamond, this is a guy who he got a push in Knoxville. He got a push mm-hmm. in Mid-South. He got the he got a push here. And then he just fell off the face of the earth. What was your thoughts on Don Diamond? I thought he was a really talented guy. Um... I thought if he, you know, I, I think he was a talented guy, but he had a ceiling. Um, I don't think he was ever going to be a big star. And, I, I mean, wow, Chris, I guess big reveal coming up. I spoke with uh, Don Diamond, got in touch with me, I want to say, in 99 or 2000. Yeah. And he was like, you know, hey, I'm looking for some tapes of myself. Well, sure. And I wound up on the phone with him, and I asked him, you know, what happened? You just kind of dropped out of wrestling. And his answer basically was, he felt like he had been in the business like five or six years, and he kind of said to himself, if it hasn't happened yet, it's never going to happen. And he now, or at the time, he he owned a trucking company out of, I think, Salt Lake City, somewhere in Utah. Wow, that's just way and that, So and he was, way he was doing good. And that's way away from anywhere he really wrestled, too. So, wow. Yeah. Well, that's good. Because there were like rumors around that he was in prison and stuff like that, that he went to prison, and uh, there was all kind of rumors about Don Diamond because he just, like I said, just disappeared. It's not, and not too long after this run in Florida, I think this was his last run because he was gone in '82. No, I I believe he dropped out in in '82. But like I said, what what he told me was, you know, he wasn't. It's a tough business. Let's be honest. He wasn't making a ton of money, and he again, what he specifically said was, okay, if it hasn't happened yet, it's not going to happen. Wow, that's awesome! I didn't know that. So that's cool. Yeah, he was a really cool guy. Yeah, and Eric Embry. Eric Embry uh, got this, you know, this underdog Bayface push here. He would get the underdog Bayface push in San Antonio. And it's funny going back and watching him in this in this underdog babyface role because he was really good at it. But Eric Embry was his, at his best either as the sleazy heel or when he was in world class. So it's funny watching how Eric well, Embry changed over the years. Yeah, Eric Embry, I mean, you know, the wrestling business is what it is. And they brought him in as Booker in world class in 89 and of course, that means Eric Embry is the the number one babyface in in Dallas, and he, you know, I mean, they had sold the promotion to Jerry Jarrett, who made Embry Booker, and Embry just did what he needed to do to make himself the number one babyface, which was to bury the Von Erichs. And I saw through it at the time. I mean, Kerry did a stretcher job for Taris Bulba. I mean, stop and think about that. But it was all about, you know, Embry making himself the top guy. Yeah. Yeah. It worked for a little while. <laughs> they did, they, it, did, they it get did. business, but yeah. Eric, and also, it was funny watching because Embry kind of got dusty stuff as, I mean, how dusty would get treated at TBS. There was fans that were turning on him in the building and he would like yell at him in promos and stuff, which was interesting. 
<laughs> oh, my favorite Eric Embry story is when someone was booing him, and Eric had security remove the guy, and the guy contacted the ACLU oh. to get reinstated into the sportatorium. <laughs> That's tremendous. That is five stars, man. <laughs> that is a great story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's just, that's tremendous. I like that. All right. Then they showed clips of uh, Bruiser Brody against the Great Kabuki from Fort Worth, which was a notable match because this was the last clean pinfall job that Brody did in the United States for pretty much uh, five years. Yeah, he did one for Abdul the Butcher in 1986, and that was it. Brody was not getting pinned or submit or submitting to anyone after that. He did the, the favor for Tukabuki, who I had heard he was friends with. Um, but after that, it was like he was protecting his Japan terror, you know, reputation like they weren't going to have a story in one of the magazines about him you know doing a job for one of the von Erichs or or anyone else in in the Japanese magazines and you know what this goes to show you how he was pivotal pivotal excuse me in getting kabuki over and people mm -hmm. forget about this i mean kabuki from right before the national expansion right before wf went big in 84 you know, Kabuki from the late 81 going to 82 and 83 was a big deal. Look at all the, the rip-off gimmicks of Kabuki there was. You know, we talk about rip-offs of like the Fabulous Ones and Rock and Roll Express. Man, there were a lot of rip-offs of Kabuki. And the, and it was crazy. It was all over. Every promotion had their version of the great Kabuki, and I felt bad for the real one. Yeah, well, he was still doing. He was doing good though. I mean, he was, you know, he was on uh, George Television. He worked in world class where he liked to work. He had a good run in Crockett, but yeah, he was a, he was a big deal. And he wasn't the greatest worker in the world for sure, especially in that gimmick. But he didn't need to be. He, I mean, no, he had the he had the gimmick, and he had. I mean, it was easy, very easy to to, to draw money with him. And uh, yeah, I mean. Two quick things. Number one, I mean, I'm just going through my mental Rolodex of all the Kabuki impersonators. Mid-Atlantic Mid had the Ninja. Florida had Kendo Nagasaki. Uh, Georgia and Texas had the Great Kabuki. Am I forgetting anyone? Um, so Kendo Nagasaki traveled. So he, he went from Florida. Then he went to Mid-South. Uh, oh, that's right. Yeah, then you had... Um, yeah, the ninja was there. Then he went to San Antonio. Of course, that's Mr. Pogo. He was a ninja mm -hmm. warrior. Um, let's see. The I'm, uh, there only were, three, but that was still there a was lot. Other ones for that, like you know, there were other ones though that were not as as big in some of the smaller little territories. But yeah, I mean, and then World Class created the Magic Dragon, who was Kabuki's partner, Horst mm -hmm. Sonoda. So. Oh yeah, it was a it was a deal. It was definitely a deal. And supposedly in the beginning, Kabuki was so over that they would book him in two different towns, and Sonoda would just be the great Kabuki yeah. for the night. No, no, the difference. Exactly, because they were just about physically the same. Exactly, yeah. and had the hair too. 
Uh, and then we have Cliff. Yeah, Kabuki was supposedly supposed to come up to the WWF in like late '82 and do a series against Backlund and then have a feud with Jimmy Snuka. I don't know if that's even that's what I heard. I don't know what happened, or maybe it just was never a thing because he was always a little bit small for the WWF. I think he would have gotten over. That could be true because I mean, uh, look at that time period. He's not in really anything important. I mean, he's working mainly in world class. So it could have been something could have been in the works and it fell through and he just went to world class and chilled for a while before going to Crockett. So that, that, yeah. that's, very, that, that's very well plausible. Uh, absolutely. All right, next we get clips. Heard that a long time ago. Yeah. Clips are matched between the spoiler and Charlie Cook. Uh, that's where the spoiler wins the Florida heavyweight title. And uh, spoiler's a guy that came into Georgia. There at the end of '83, early '84, and uh, he's a guy that doesn't get enough uh, credit for stuff he did. Very agile, big man, walked the ropes. You know that's where Undertaker learned it from, and uh, he cut a promo that was different from most other people. I mean, big dude. Uh, what are your thoughts on the spoiler? I was a big fan. Um, I always thought that the spoiler would have been a great guy to bring to New York to have a run against Backlund. Um, I was surprised, you know, he was around world class a lot in 1987, which I didn't realize until I went through a bunch of tapes, 87 and 88, he was still around. Um, he finally came to the WWF and just totally did not get a push at all, uh, in 84 when he jumped, when he was the national heavyweight champion. And looking back, that, that surprises me a little bit because there's stuff you could have done with him. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, he didn't have to have a, you know, a great Hogan feud or anything, but you definitely could have put him in a, a more of a spotlight than what they did. But they had so many guys at that time period they were bringing in that they just, you know, kind of someone got lost in the shuffle, I would say. So that's exactly what the term I was going to use. It was easy to get lost in the shuffle because the WWF was adding so much talent that it was almost hard to keep up with. I mean, you would tune in on Saturday just to see, you know, who was making their debut this week, usually from the AWA. <laughs> yeah, and then it became like Crockett after that because it was getting all the Crockett's guys <laughs> in one show. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. All right, next we have an elimination match of television. Brian Blair, El Gran Apollo, and Bob Owens. One of these things not like the other. Versus uh, <laughs> Ed Wiskowski, Avalanche Buzz Tyler, and their manager, J.J. Dillon. Interesting. That is a strange match. Interesting group of names. But other guys I want in that match I want to talk about. El Gran Apollo is a guy who, in this era, 81 and early 82, was really getting the push on Florida and Georgia television. Both of them. And, yeah, and, he, and he's, and he's a guy that went away, too. He basically went to Puerto Rico and, and stayed there for a while. Yeah, he went to Puerto Rico, and as far as I know, never came back. I got Florida wrestling on cable at this time, and he really was getting a big push, and he looked pushable despite the fact that he spoke no English, which almost – you know, it was it was actually really cool because he would go out there. He didn't speak English, but Barbara Clary did, so she was his mouthpiece, and it was just a, a very interesting look. Yeah, yeah, and the guy could work. He had, he, he looked good. He had great hair. I mean, he, he, there was something you could do, something you could do with him. But yeah, he just ended up going back to a WWC in Puerto Rico, and that's where he stayed for the rest of his career, basically. Yeah, he was a good-looking guy who could work. Um, I thought he would have been. 
I mean, at the time, I thought he was a he would be a natural for the WWF, but it just never happened. Yeah, considering they like to use the ethnic baby faces, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and it would have been you know part of his charisma, I think, would have been coming up here and just not speaking any English, but doing his interviews in Spanish. It would have set him apart. He could have been a tag team with Pedro Morales, and Pedro could have cut his great promos with him. I tell you, Vince, <laughs> any kind of action, baby, any kind of action, Vince. <laughs> Love Pedro. Next, uh, we get a very interesting match from re- for quite a few reasons. Sweet Brown Sugar, Skip Young, not wearing a mask, versus a heel, Carrie Von Eric. Uh huh. Now I've talked about this with Barry Rose on our uh, series of Florida shows. There was a a very brief time. Yeah, I think it may have been a week or two. David's there, of course, as a heel, and he's. You know, one of the top heels in the territory at this time period. Doing great. And Carrie comes in for a week or two to be his tag partner. Well, it's not on this tape, but there's a situation at one point where Ric Flair and Butch Reed are having an angle and they're getting into it. And Butch Reed presses, he strips Ric Flair, presses him from the ring and throws him to the floor where he's caught by... David and Carrie Von Erich. Mm-hmm. Wow. But you look at Carrie Von Erich here as a heel, and this is one of the very, very few times he ever worked as a heel, but you see him here, and he's working with Skip Young, who, you know, they knew for many years with each other. He mm-hmm. looked like a guy who could have been a really strong heel performer here. I agree. As far as I know, that is the only match available on tape where Kerry is performing as a heel. It's, I don't think it's on that tape, but I, I saw a segment where David and Kerry were doing an interview in Florida as heels, and Kerry, it, it was it was like you were seeing a different person because Kerry came across as the spoiled, pampered jock, dumb jock. And it really worked as far as like him being a heel. I would love to see an alternative universe where Kerry gets a big, big push somewhere using that persona. I think it would have worked. And Kevin came, you know, would come off as a heel a lot of times too. He was kind of yes. coarse and stuff. I mean, could you imagine Kerry and Kevin going to some territories like a heel tag team and stuff like that? I mean, that that would have been wild. To see that it really would have i mean think about it there, there's you know an alternative universe where david was never a heel and we all got to see how good a heel he would have been he was and i think he would have been absolutely i think that would have been his future he would have been he would have eventually gone away from world class and his future would have been a heel either in the wwf or with crockett yep very easy to have. Hey, quick insertion. Yeah. We Ed Wiskowski's name came up yes. a couple of minutes mm-hmm. ago. I met him briefly in Chicago. And, I mean, let me tell you guys something. The wrestlers are so much bigger in person than they are on TV. TV does not do these guys justice. They were huge. Ed Wiskowski is like the number one guy who is so much bigger in real life than he seemed to be on TV. I don't know why that never really got like hammered in, that this guy was like a legit 6'4", and had to be 270, 280 pounds. He was huge. Yeah, he was a big dude. I mean, you're right. He's he's that deceptive big. 
And, and, and you, yeah. you watch some of his stuff, and you kind and you'll see it. But yeah, you're right. I mean, he he was a large man, and there's a lot of guys like that. But he was a large man. And, and yeah, some guys they're just huge, and they just don't get pushed as being huge. So it's like the, the drum doesn't go beat. We don't. They, the promotions didn't beat the drum that this is a big guy, but he was a big guy. Absolutely, absolutely. Now we continue with Skip Young here, and he gets a, a big win over uh, Ray the Crippler Stevens for the Florida Television Title here in '82. And um, Skip Young. Um, both wearing the mask, not wearing the mask. Um, in my opinion, he was better with the mask. So I'm not curious to hear your thoughts on that. But he's a guy that he could have been a bigger star than what he was too, right? I agree. You know, going back in time, your podcast was the very first podcast I was ever on. Yeah. And this was like three years ago. And we talked a little bit about Skip Young, how he was one of the ultimate guys that was just better with the mask than he was without the mask. He just – he and Jerry Stubbs were like the top two. Uh, Skip just didn't have that that like physical charisma, um, that, that facial charisma, I guess you could say, that the mask provided for him. Um, Plus he had the I, mean, eye. I knew who he was. He had a lazy eye too. He, he, <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that's true. That probably had a lot to do with it. Yeah. But I mean – he drew a, threw a drop kick that oh. was just mind blowing, and you know we were talking about Tom McGee being a one trick pony. Skip might have been a little bit not a one trick pony, but that was definitely his best trick. And you know I, I wish he had kept the mask on, quite frankly, and you know just gone done his career as Sweet Brown Sugar with the mask. I think he would have been a lot more successful. And he was the guy that went to Georgia too uh, in '84 with the mask. <laughs> he remasked. Oh, that's right. And worked in Georgia for a while, yeah, with the mask on. So, uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, underrated guy, Skip Young. All right, next we have... Yeah, I think so. Yeah, next we have an ma- interesting TV match here. Jack and Jerry Briscoe against Masafuchi and Asushi Onida from January 82. Quite the uh, interesting teams here. Uh, oh, yeah. And Fuchi Onida, I- they had been in Memphis... And now they work in Florida, and they're not in Florida very long before they both go back to Japan. So this is a cool little match here. Uh, Fuchi Onita, I mean, everybody remembers them for the concession stand brawl in Memphis with Eddie Gilbert, Ricky Morton, but they really adapted well to work in the American style. And of course, I mean, Onita basically, <laughs> FFW became you know what he what he experienced over here in America in a lot of ways. So, uh, oh yeah, what, 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 and then that, that brings the question to me: When you saw Onita all those years later in FMW, what you? I mean, what were your thoughts on that? This see the guy from used to be in the team with Fuji, and of course had retired. He was you know junior heavyweight champion, clean cut Onita, and he becomes this whole different person. I mean, that's wrestling. I mean, you know, guys reinvent themselves so often, but I mean, it was an amazing transformation because I, you know, I was getting Florida wrestling on cable at this time and they did an angle where, uh, Fuji and Onita, who were managed by Sir Oliver Humperdinck, if I recall correctly, attacked Jerry Briscoe on TV. Jerry was just, uh, doing his, 
co-commentating job with Gordon Soley, and he got into a confrontation with Humperdinck, and he was attacked by Fuji and Onida, which set up this feud. Um, but yeah, it's just it's just interesting that these guys were kind of a nondescript tag team, to be honest with you, aside from the Memphis brawl, and they went on to do the things that they did. I mean, Fuji went on to be uh, maybe, I don't want to say an all-time great, but a great wrestler in Japan in the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely, yeah. The, another guy that's very underrated as well. But yeah, tremendous, oh, yeah. tremendous worker. And Onita, of course, is a icon. <laughs> yes. So you just never know. I mean, you, you think about it. I mean, would ECW have ever happened without FMW? Without ECW, would we have had an Attitude Era? Yeah, I mean, you put all the put all the the puzzle pieces together. I mean, it's very possible that you know, without Onita, who knows where we're at yeah. in today's time. That's, a piv- pivotal figure. That's for sure. All right, next we have a TV match: Killer Carl Cox and David Sierra against the Spoiler and Chan Chung, which was Kendo Nagasaki before he became Kendo Nagasaki. He was in a mask gimmick as Chan Chung, but Killer Carl Cox was here. And he was working his, I guess, your crazed marine gimmick, um, where he had the one he had Alex on his hand, and he had the one boot that was a different color than the other boot, and stuff like that. And of course, Rick Steiner—that's what Rick Steiner would become years mm-hmm. later in the NWA, where Dusty, of course, got this from Killer Carl Cox. But what was your thoughts on Killer Carl Cox as a as a uh, performer? I mean, I I got to see him towards the end of his career. If this was 1982, he had to be like 47, 48 years old, and he looked every year of it. But, you know, I saw him in Knoxville as a babyface, and he would be doing, like, straight interviews, and he was really good at it. But I also liked him as the crazed ex-Marine talking to Alex and, you know, just looking up at the sky. I mean, you know, I, I thought it was great, and like I said, it seemed like he almost didn't find himself as a wrestler until he was like in his forties. And by that point it was almost too late. Yeah, pretty much. Exactly. All right. Then we have a Terry Funk, Jerry Lawler brawl, which leads to a Terry Funk promo <laughs> where, oh, no. where he's in a, looks like a bathroom stall where he goes nuts. He pours dirt and motor oil over his head and body. An attempt to see what it's like to be a dirty, greasy Floridian. And you, mm-hmm. and you noted here, says, do not mention this interview to Terry. As the Motorola wouldn't wash out of his hair and he had to shave his head. So, talk about this promo. <laughs> okay, I mean, it was an insane promo and... You know, I mean, kids don't pour motor oil over your head. It was getting in his eyes and his mouth. It was a complete disaster. And I, I will share a personal anecdote. Oh, wow, Mike. This was 30 years ago. I was in Philadelphia for Halloween Havoc 89. Oh, yes. And um, I, I was at a bar where the wrestlers were, and... Dave Meltzer comes up to me, and he's like, don't tell anyone, but do you want to come with me up to Funk's room? And we hung out with Funk for like, I don't know, five or six hours, more like four or five hours, and talk about just like, you know, learning at the knee of the master. But Dave was like, he's like, do not bring up the empty arena match and do not bring up that promo. 
and you know just don't talk about it. So that's why I put it in there. <laughs> like don't mention it to Terry. It's a sore, at least at one point it was a sore spot to him. <laughs> oh God, he was so great. Yeah, and that promo was tremendous. Absolutely. Yeah, but look that up on YouTube if you can. All right. Let's, next, we got Bobby Jaggers and Killer Claw Cox. Clips of that them in a match. The Texas Outlaws, Dick, Dirty Dusty Rose and Dick Murdoch, in a match from Japan against Killer Khan and Kim Duck, or as you may know him as Tiger Chung Lee. So they were showing uh, clips of this match on Florida television to see the Outlaws together. And then we get this a bunkhouse match Dusty Rose versus Ben Hovey. Yes. TV jobber Ben Hovey challenged Dusty. The Ben Hovey. The Ben Hovey challenged Dusty to a bunkhouse match. And Dusty beat the shit out of him in this match. But it, it was later <laughs> revealed that Dory Funk Jr. was the mastermind that put Hovey up to challenging Dusty for this match. Tremendous. <laughs> Dory Funk Jr. put him in Florida and give him the book. And you will have some really great stuff. Dory was one of the greatest heels I had ever seen because here's this guy, you know, he's balding. He he doesn't have a great body and he just comes across as such a sneaky and conniving dirtbag that you want to kill him. I mean, I remember just hating this guy. He wasn't like a cool heel. He was like a sniveling, sneaky heel. Yeah. And he was great. Oh yeah, he was. He was. You know, really he just good. he didn't get to show that. Like when he was in the WWF in like nineteen eighty six, eighty seven, he didn't show it in other territories. But he did it, and he was great at it in Florida. He didn't really do it in Mid Atlantic when he had the book there. No, he didn't. <laughs> I mean, uh, it, yeah. it was yeah. Come to think of it. I mean, he he did that ridiculous thing. I think we talked about it the last show, where he put up a hundred thousand dollars to anyone who could beat him. Yeah, and that was to me that was one of the most horrific angles of all time. Even as a kid, I knew what a hundred thousand dollars was, and you know, Dory Funk Jr. didn't have it to burn. <laughs> yeah, and then we have speaking of Dory, we have him in two tag matches with Kendall Nakasaki as his partner. Against Butch Reed, Sweet Brown Sugar, and against Brian Blair and El Gran Apollo, where Butch Reed got hit by the Green Mist. So they re- they really put Kendo Nagasaki over hard in this territory at this time. I mean, he he, he put Mike Graham out of action. He put Chavo Guerrero out of action. I mean, he they put him over as like this world beater here. They did. They actually did an angle where. Uh, Nagas- I think was was it Nagasaki who beat up the jobber really bad? Uh, I'm not sure. Someone beat up a jobber really bad, and Eddie Graham was doing commentary. And he's like, "Oh, I'll go to the ring and see if this kid's all right." And as soon as I saw him do that, I knew what was coming, and it was Kendo Nagasaki came out and think, just beat the crap out of Eddie Graham. Yeah, I think he did do that. Yeah. I mean, they, they, right. they you know, it, it was Nagasaki. I just can't remember if, if it was him in the match beforehand. Yeah, I mean, they definitely went hard with him to get him over, and and it worked. Yeah, and then and, and then I remember that, and then they used the magazine the cover. I remember that magazine cover. I think it was Inside Wrestling. It had Kendo Nagasaki and Dusty Rhodes, and Kendo has the nerve hold on Dusty, and he's looking right into the camera, making a funny face. 
And yeah, they used him to turn the Funk's baby face because he attacked uh, he attacked he attacked Terry by mistake, and then Dory comes out there, and Dory and Dusty end up teaming up to beat the hell out of him. <laughs> so. And the Funks teaming with Dusty at the time was unthinkable, yes. but they did it. Yeah, they did it for a little bit. Absolutely. Speaking of the Funks, we have Terry and Dory here in a match in Japan against Jack Briscoe and Killer Tim Brooks, which air where, where Abdullah Butcher attacking Terry. So, uh, interesting to have some good Japanese matches on here. And next, we go to the last promotion on this tape, Southwest Championship Wrestling. Adrian Adonis versus Bob Sweetan joining progress. Sweetan got the pin, but Adonis put him out with Goodnight Irene afterwards. These two were feuding over the Southwest heavyweight title at the time. And um, Adonis, we talked about Adonis for on this show. At this time period, just what an amazing performer he was. He was. He might have been the best in-ring worker in the world. And people are going, whoa, wait a minute. No, he was that good. He, I saw him in Boston in a match against Andre the Giant that was like three, three and a half stars. And this was, this was post-broken leg Andre, so he's not you know, contributing much. It was just Adrian just flipping around the ring by himself. Absolutely, absolutely. And Bob Sweetan, well, we'll talk about him more as we go along. We've got more Bob Sweetan coming up. All right, Ricky Morton and okay. Ken Lucas against the Grapplers. Uh, where Morton and Lucas are destroying the heels, so manager Don Carson has the grapplers go back to the dressing room. Now, Ricky Morton, of course, not too long after this, would become part of the Rock and Roll Express with Robert Gibson. But this is Ricky's first uh, push on national television, team with Ken Lucas, and they were a really good tag team. People forget about that tag team, and they forget about that part of Ricky Morton's career, but, you know, they teamed regularly for a long time, and they were a good tag team. They were a good contrast in styles, in my opinion. Yeah, and of course the Grafflers being Lynn Denton and uh, Tony Anthony, Dirty White, the future Dirty White Boys, and uh, Don Carson as a manager. What were your thoughts on him? I, I didn't think he was very good. <laughs> <laughs> he was definitely different. I mean, nothing against the guy, but I just didn't understand. Well, I didn't understand why they were putting him in that, that big a position, to be honest with you. He was the top manager in Southwest. And, uh, you know, I, even when he was in Georgia with Mongolian Stomper, I was kind of like, you know, what's the deal with this guy? Yeah, it, he was okay, but it just it, it, it didn't work on a big stage, put that way. Definitely not. I think that's fair to say. All right, next. But speaking of which, yeah. Bob Sweetan as the number one babyface yes. in Southwest, I never understood that. Like, even, you know, we got Southwest on, on cable in 83, and I always wondered why this guy, not, not only did he seem out of place as a babyface, but as the number one babyface on national cable, Guess it never booker. added up to me. Guess who the Oh, well, there, there you go. <laughs> That answered your question. <laughs> right away, that answered my question. And as soon as uh, Boyd got the book, uh, Jonathan Boyd, yeah. uh, Sweet Hand turned heel, and then the Sheep Herders were the number one heels that got all the TV time. So, yeah, it all adds all up. All adds up. All right, Tully Blanchard, we have here from two matches from the uh, Southwest Heavyweight Title Tournament. Mike Graham, a three-star match where he beats Mike, and then where he beats Sweet Hand for the title. In the finals, where Sweet Tam was injured in the previous match, and Tully took him apart easily. 
So Tully Blanchard, your new Southwest heavyweight champion. And Tully, if you I mean you only seen Tully work for Crockett, uh, you definitely need to check him out Southwest because he's a he's a different type of Tully in a way, but it's he's really really good in this role. He's super brat. He was. I mean, he was, you know, we just talked about who was the number one heel. I mean, by this, Tully was, he was by no questions asked, the king of Southwest Championship Wrestling. He was the top heel. He was the top star. He was the the big fish in a small pond. I was actually surprised that Tully got over on a national basis because I, I always thought that's what he would be. Um, big fish, small pond, if he ever wound up going, let's say, to the WWF, he would be at like an Iron Mike Sharp level. And I would, I've never been more happy to be wrong because Tully was great at what he did. Absolutely, absolutely. And he's surrounded by guys, too, and especially in this territory. Uh, like he's, this next match is him and Adrian Adonis, where they, they would team up off and on, and they're against Morton and Lucas, where Adonis gets DQ for jumping off the top rope. And you hate that rule, the top rope rule. It's so stupid. You know what? It was kind of stupid. And here's the thing. Um, Sam Muchnick used to defend it. He'd be like, look, if someone jumped off the top rope, you know, you're going to kill the guy. And it's just that, that way it's illogical. Uh, Bill Watts would say, well, off the top rope is banned because that way we can save it for big heel spots. But here's the problem. As wrestling continues to grow – and there are more and more programs on, you're seeing guys in other promotions come off the top rope. Exactly. So immediately that becomes outdated and you need to get rid of it. Exactly. Like when Bill Watts brought that back in 92, like no off the top rope, but we're going to use it for heel spots. I'm like, first of all, they've never had a no off the top rule and now they're going to have it, which doesn't make sense. And then the wrestling on the other channels, you can come off the top rope. So, you know, like I said, it was, it was outdated long before 92. It was outdated in the eighties. Absolutely. Next we get Bob Sweet Tan versus Tonga John. Yes. The future barbarian where Tully and Adrian Adonis run out and they beat up on Sweet Tan. Cause that's the, you know, one of your big feuds at the time. So there you go. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I was a little bit not disappointed, not disappointed by Adonis's run in Southwest because he was doing that between Japan tours, and pretty soon he'd be gone. Because I remember when he first showed up, I'm like, okay, this is going to be really good, and he just seemed kind of in and out of there. Yeah, he bounced around, definitely. But they did give him that World Heavyweight title they created, though, so at least he did have that on his resume. But uh, but yeah, he always seemed like he was. He wasn't, I mean, totally was above him in a lot of ways, which, you know, hey. Yeah, definitely. Makes sense. All right, next we have, well, there's another lead heel in this territory, too. Texas Bull Rope match, Bobby Jaggers against Scott Casey. Good, but no finish shown. Well, we'll have more of them coming up. We have another match for this, <laughs> too. All right, next we have another match with Morton and Lucas versus the Grapplers, where the Grapplers used the old loaded boot trick to win the tag team titles. Ah, the loaded boot. This is... This is the loaded boot. Uh, pretty much in modern times, begins with a grappler. Lint it. Yes, as a matter of fact, I saw on cable where it all began. Ted DiBiase put the grappler in the figure four leg lock. The two of them had been feuding over the North American title. DiBiase wouldn't let go. 
So the grappler comes out. He's on crutches the next week, and he says that he has this special orthopedic boot that is one heel is higher than the other with the idea of taking pressure off of his injured leg. This basically one leg would be doing more work than the other leg. Well, guess what? That's really not what was going on with that boot. <laughs> oh no. And then Robert Fuller, you know, but Robert they, Fuller they were would smart use about it, it and Tom Pritchard would use it later on. So it definitely was copy, but you're right. And it was the easy heel heat. Absolutely. It was. And Mid-South did it so smart. They they explained it. And at first you're like, okay, he's got an orthopedic boot because he's got a knee injury. And then, boom, all of a sudden there's a problem. When they did it in Smoky Mountain, they had, like, very little backstory to it. Why is he wearing – you know, why is this boot supposed – how is this boot supposed to help Tom Pritchard? And it just didn't come across anywhere near as good. Yeah. And next we got another Bob, Bobby Jagger, Scott Casey match. So, uh, and I think we talked about the, uh, yeah, we definitely have talked about the, uh, hell of shit on this show before we covered it. But, uh, Bobby Jaggers was a guy who, I mean, good promo, good worker. Again, just a guy who on a, on a national stage wouldn't have been anywhere close to a top star. You know, it, it's funny when Bobby Jaggers was in Florida in 80 and 81, I thought I was seeing a superstar, a guy who was going to come to New York and wrestle a series against Bob Backlund, a guy who was going to go to the Carolinas and win the United States title. I really thought that. I thought he was that good. So, you know, I start getting Southwest Championship Wrestling on cable, and I'm looking forward to, you know, oh, Bobby Jaggers is on. He's awesome. And something happened. The magic was gone. Jaggers was just not the same guy in this environment or really in any other environment, he was just never able to recapture the magic he had in Florida. Yeah. I don't know what happened. <laughs> I guess, uh, well, he, he had, I know he had a stop in central States for a while between then. So that could have contributed to it. <laughs> I mean, maybe, you know, his, his conditioning. I mean, I like Bobby a lot, but his conditioning left a lot to be desired and, the wrestling business was changing, and he just had to get in better shape than he was in. Yeah. Then we have Basui Tanel Santo Negro against the Grapplers. Negro, Negro gets hurt, and then Ricky Morton comes out and helps clean house. So they got an angle there. Next, we get a match of San Antonio. Nick Botwinkle versus Jerry the King Lawler. An AWA title match where Bobby Heenan interfered and cost Lawler the match. I always dug watching Botwinkle uh, work outside the AWA. Always cool seeing him in different Oh, same here. Yeah. And, you know, especially, I mean, Southwest was not part of the NWA, and they used Bockwinkel as AWA champion. Yeah, it was always a treat to see him outside of that environment. Yes. Because he was such an AWA guy, to Absolutely. me at least. Absolutely, yeah. It, just, it, it, it seemed like you were seeing something special in a way, to see him outside the AWA. Yeah, Absolutely. Then we have Tilly Blanchard against Scott Casey in a match. And then we have Mike Graham and Ken Lucas against the Grapplers, where the Grapplers ended injured Mike. And then Rip McGraw took his place. Yes, Rip McGraw, who has just left uh, Jarrett as one of the New York Dolls, comes to Southwest and has you know, got his hair back to his normal color and is back being a babyface again. And Rip, Rip McGraw... Um, do you think his size hurt him, or what do you think hurt him from being maybe a bigger star in the business? Uh, definitely his size. I mean, he was 
I remember in 82 watching him with Steve Travis and just going, oh, my God, these guys are – they're huge. They were so blown up. But I think McGraw was probably a legit 5'5", five, 5'6". Five, five, short man. And that that just does not help you in the wrestling business. They were over Travis and McGraw in the WWF. I think they could have put the titles on him. Um, he came across as McGraw did as kind of an, you know a real underdog babyface. And but that was kind of I think that was his ceiling to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, and what you think about him as a heel in Memphis with the New York Dolls and that gimmick? <laughs> it was definitely a curious gimmick. <laughs> <laughs> and. I, I, I think it, it looked like it was supposed to go further than it did. Like they were supposed to have a bigger feud with the fabulous he ones. And he walked just, out. <laughs> oh, I didn't, I did not know that. Yeah. He, he left. The promotion. Well, he, I, I don't know why he left, but he left and went to Southwest. And so dream machine basically sits on the sidelines for a little bit until they decide to put him with pork chop. as one of the Bruce brothers at their uh, mad dog boy. Okay. They decided to Mad Dog Boy is going to be one no more, so they put Dream Machine and Porkchop. So yeah, it's weird how that happened. But you're right; it seemed like it just ended out of nowhere. No, I okay, that explains it. I had no idea that he just up and quit. Um, maybe he didn't like the gimmick. Uh, Memphis could be a tough place to work. Maybe yeah. it's a combination of things. Yeah. All right, next we get Sweet Boss Sweet Ten win the Southwest title from Tully in a bloody match, and then Tully and Gino. Gino's back in town. Uh, I guess the Grapplers and a heel versus heel match for the Southwest tag titles where basically the dynamic duo work as the de facto babyface in this match, especially Gino. And the crowd's really into that. I mean, they wanted to cheer mm -hmm. these guys. Um, Gino uh, gets the win. He accidentally hit Tully during the match. And Gino eventually gets the win. They win the tag titles, and Tully just waylaid him with a belt, turns on him. And now you you have this feud now that on paper looks like this is going this is going to be the promotion carrying feud for a year or so. Yeah, this, this is this is going to be a big deal. They're on USA Network. This is this is going to put them on the map. And then they work a couple of matches around the horn. They have a match in in Houston at the Summit, their big show there, and then Gino basically leaves, and that's it. Yeah. Uh they had the match. I think it was the same night they had the World uh, Championship Tournament Correct. in Houston. Um, they had Ernie Shavers as the guest referee, yeah. who was a big-name boxer. And from what I understand, just Gino had been in and out of the wrestling business like for about six months before this. He was getting tired of it, and he left to go open up a nightclub in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And that obviously, but he was out of the wrestling business for a while. Yeah, he he was from eighty one and eighty two. He would like have spurts. Yes, definitely eighty two. You, 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 he'd come in for a little bit, leave. Come in for a little bit, leave. And then this part here in eighty three. Once he leaves here, he doesn't come back until he goes world class uh, uh, around May. He debuted. Uh, he he announced his debut at the Texas Stadium. Yeah, he show. was gone for basically so that a was, whole year. Yeah, yeah, and it was like, wow, Gino's back. You know, back then, a year was a, it just seemed like a lot longer time than it was now. 
But, you know, you're asking yourself, like, beginning of 84, end of 83, where is Gino Hernandez? And Tully and, was lost yeah, he... without him. What's that? I said Tully was lost without him because that was supposed to be the big feud. So Tully, mm-hmm. Tully is back working, you know, some of these other guys like Scott Casey and stuff until they turn in babyface. Yeah. Against the, the Sheep Herders. I... I do remember that the sheep herders attacked Joe Blanchard on TV. Yeah. This was right around the very end of their run on USA Network, and Tully turned babyface. And you know, there's there's an old saying in the wrestling business that the better you are as a babyface, the better you will be as a heel, and vice versa. And that's generally true, but Tully is the exception. <laughs> yeah, Tully Blanchard as babyface just doesn't feel right. <laughs> it just doesn't. He is a heel. No. He's definitely a heel. Uh, I think had they brought him back like they were scheduled to uh, February 1990, they were supposed to bring him back as part of the Clash of the Champions where Sting blew out his knee. Uh, The plan literally going into the day of the show was that Tully was going to show up and he was going to be the protagonist that turned Ric Flair heel. Um, And to this day, I think they should have brought Tully back as a baby face and kept the horsemen baby faces. The the reaction the horsemen were getting in early nineteen ninety was phenomenal. I, I to this day I under well Rick Flair. I know why they did it. <laughs> Rick Flair didn't yeah, want to Rick wanted to do it, so there you go. He's the and he's the but, he's still the head of the head of the button committee. Yeah. And, you know, he, he just liked being a heel and the the whole thing was ridiculous. By the time they turned Ric Flair, May nineteen eighty nine, it was it was he was way overdue to be turned and it was way too early to turn him back. Absolutely. Now we've just But anyway, that's the only scenario where I think you could have had a baby face Tully Blanchard was he's just one of the horsemen and we like the horsemen. We don't care if he's a jerk. Yeah. Now, you mentioned this match a while ago. Adrian Adonis versus Bob Orton Jr. in the finals of the Undisputed World Heavyweight Title Tournament from the summit in Houston. And uh, you you said here that, I guess having a son on USA Network went to Joe Blanchard's head. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, he created his own world championship. Lutez brought the old World Heavyweight Title and presented it to Adonis, and uh, which Lutez was the figurehead president of Southwest at this time mm-hmm. period. But, um, yeah, I mean, them doing a World Heavyweight title tournament, as a fan at the time watching it, how'd that come off to you? It did not, not very well at all. Um, Watching it at the time, and just, you know, I knew that Southwest, I'm not going to call it a minor league, but I knew it was a step below WWF, AWA, Georgia, Florida, Mid-South, etc. They just didn't have the talent base that, that those promotions had. So for them to go out as a, you know, a mid-level promotion and declare the winner of this one night tournament to be the world's heavyweight champion. When you've got guys like El Santo Negro in the tournament, it, it came across, it, it didn't look good to me. I will say this. Yeah. If I had a time machine, like one of the first things I'd want to do is be in Houston on that night sitting next to Dave Melter and Mark Nolte, who went to that show together. Yeah. And then you could have went to the Bosch thing, was it the night before, that Bosch ran his show? That he ran that big show at the um, Sandy's Coliseum? That's a competition? I, think, I know he ran right. I think the night before. I think he ran the night before, and 
he wrote a, a scathing column in his pro- program just ripping apart this tournament. <laughs> I need to get a copy of that. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Oh, he, he just ripped it apart. Yes. Then we have a memorable match and a memorable angle to close up this tape and this show. The Sheep Herders versus the Grapplers. Just another heel versus heel match. The Sheep Herders offered Don Carson $5,000 to turn the Grapplers with a $100 deposit. <laughs> he took it. And the Sheeps won the tag titles. And then what did they do after the match? They turned on Don Carson. So Don Carson had no team anymore. Now, that's funny. That's a creative angle. It is, um, and any t- you know, Jonathan Boyd. I st- I corresponded with him briefly. He was a good guy, but I mean, his booking. He didn't. He booked. He not only booked the sheep herders to be world beaters. Okay, he booked them like they were the road warriors. Oh, beyond they were the road warriors. But then he would always book the baby faces or anyone around them to look really stupid like he did with Don Carson. Okay, here's a hundred dollar deposit, Don, the other forty nine hundreds coming afterwards. Yeah, right. You know, they just <laughs> he he had no problem making others look incompetent. I remember the sheep herders were feuding with Bobby Jaggers. And again, this was like the very end of the run on USA Network. And the sheep herders did a number on Jaggers, and Jaggers did an interview afterwards. And Jaggers was literally in tears, crying, saying, Why don't they just leave us alone? And I'm like, Oh, my, you just killed yourself, Bobby. No one's going to take you seriously after that yeah. as a babyface. Yeah. I, I, I'm serious. He was saying, why don't they just leave us alone? Oh, my God. <laughs> no one's going to want to see, see you after that. Exactly. Yeah, I, yeah and, and I, I didn't specify this as uh, we've gone on the show, but, yeah, this version of Sheep Herders is Jonathan Boyd and Luke Williams, not Butch Miller. So, Actually, what happened is Boyd got into a really bad car accident. He almost died. Yes. Yeah. And that's when they brought in uh, Miller. But Boyd booked himself as like a Superman in a wheelchair. Well, after Miller, that. Miller didn't come in immediately. Remember who the t- tag partner Luke Williams was? Oh, I do. I, I, Iron uh, Sheik. I see. That's right. And then he, le- he, he, <laughs> he goes from being Luke Williams' tag partner to WWF World Heavyweight Champion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's why I've always said that the Sheik was the luckiest guy in the world to be next in line to wrestle Backlund when they signed Hulk Hogan because he was he didn't get a big push in Georgia. He had that brief run in San Antonio, and bam, they make him WWF champion. He was like I said, he was the luckiest guy in the world for that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Too bad it wasn't a mass superstar. All right, and uh, <laughs> the angle that we have in this tape is one I just mentioned. Funny but gross angle where Scott Casey dumped a bucket of pig uh, droppings on Bobby Jagger's head. You know, a lot of people point to this as the reason why Southwest was kicked off the USA Network. This, this happened a couple of months before that actually happened. So this was not the reason why they were off USA Network. 
They were on USA Network. No, it wasn't. The, the reason they went off USA Network is because Vince McMahon gave them a better deal. Exactly. There you go. That's the reason. That, that's a whole reason. Not but a picture yet. <laughs> I do know that USA Network was upset that Southwest was running some of the stuff that they were running, including this. Uh, at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. I mean, you know, they, hey, come watch cartoons and then a little pro wrestling and Southwest would just go nuts with the blood and, you know, that particular angle. I've had people tell me that they legitimately poured uh, pig excrement on Bobby Jaggers, which if they did that, they're the craziest people in the world. Why not just get a bucket of mud? It, 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 it looked like, you know, it looked like it was real too. The way co- the color of it was, I mean, it looked yeah. nasty and very nasty. Yeah, but there's no. There's uh, like no I said, way. the the urban legend is it was real. And if it were, if you're Bobby Jaggers and you're like, nope, just get a bucket of mud, you're crazy. Yeah. So I don't know. We'll see. I doubt it. <laughs> All right. Uh, we only got one tape in, but this is a loaded tape, so it, it, it's one of my favorites. So. I kind of figured this would only be the only tape we talk about them this week on this uh this version of this show. So uh, John, go ahead and get your plug in for uh, your podcast. Well, if you enjoyed hearing this, I think you'll enjoy hearing Stick to Wrestling. It's a weekly show that. Uh excuse me, Sean Goodwin and I do. It comes out uh, midnight every Thursday. It is a one-hour show. It's basically, it's like this show, two old buddies just talking about wrestling. Uh, This week, uh, we took a scan of the 1984 uh, Pro Wrestling Illustrated Awards, and we compared the PWI Awards to the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Awards, and we told you, who we would have put in those places. You, a lot of the time we agreed, like Roddy Piper was best heel. Um, a lot of the times we disagreed. Go listen to it and find out. All right. Definitely check that out. That sounds like a fun show. All right, next time that me and John reconvene on this show, we'll definitely talk about Ch- uh, Volume 9 on the, on the list. And uh, if you're a Bruiser Brody fan, you'll definitely love this show because we have a lot of Brody, but uh, – in the United States and in Japan, and we have quite a bit of uh, St. Louis and Kansas City in general on this uh, on this tape. And we'll talk about uh, WF going to St. Louis. We'll talk about Andre the Giant, Stan Hansen in Japan. We'll talk about the new fabulous ones, and we'll oh my. and we'll talk about Joe Ledoux, Randy Savage, Rick Rude in Memphis. So lots of fun stuff to talk about on uh, next show. So. Uh, and the debut of Coco Ware and Overlost is the Pretty Young Things. So definitely check that out uh, in the not-so-distant future when we do the show again. All right, John. Definitely uh, always a pleasure to have you on the show. And like I said, we'll definitely try to get sooner this next time. So I know I've said that before, but try to stick to it. <laughs> so. Well, I'm part of the problem myself. I'm busy with with all kinds of stuff. But thank you for having me on, Chris. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Absolutely. We definitely thank everybody for listening as well. All right. For John, it's Chris. And we've been saying so long from the Peach State of Georgia.